Hey guys, I'm here. Thank you for bearing with us while we put this episode together. I know it's been an unexpected hiatus. It turns out that between me spending most of May putting my book together and then Jesse teaching abroad during June, we were just really way more busy than we anticipated being. But we have this episode and another on the same topic coming out pretty soon, and then we should be back on track. Uh, side note, if you've been waiting for it, my book is now available on Amazon or through Barnes & Noble, Kobo, various other places. Do a Google. It's Dionysus in Wisconsin, or I will leave a link in the show notes. If you wanted a signed copy, I'm selling them for $15. You can send me a email at ehlupton at gmail.com or basically any of the other ways to contact me through Twitter, Mastodon, whatever. Track me down, find me, I can send it to you. Alright, that's it. Enjoy the episode and have a great day. Veni, Veni, Venias, and welcome to our podcast. Good evening, and welcome to Ask a Medievalist. I'm M, the Ask portion of our program, and joining me tonight, as always, is Dr. Jesse Noose. Hello! So, um, tonight, I, I'm drinking a coffee with a little bit of brandy in it, because we're talking about drugs. And specifically yes. psychoactive drugs, but yes. anything that, like anything else that I could have would probably not be conducive to really quality podcasting. Um, <laughs> it would, I mean, out. like, you know, yes. yes. I mean, like, some psychoactive but drugs. But we should say why we're doing funny, this episode. Why we are doing this episode. Okay, so, uh, peer pressure. No. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I wrote um, a book. Self peer pressure. Yes, yes. I wrote um, a lot. I've written a lot of books, but this is really the big one because this is the one that we're publishing. I'm publishing. This is going really well as an explanation so far. Um, okay, I wrote a book. It's got a guy who, over the course of the book, slowly, gradually turns into Dionysus, and Dionysus is an interesting god because he's really well known for being the god of wine and. You know, he turns into Bacchus when he gets to Rome, or sometimes um, Liber Pater, which is, you know, gods associated with drinking. And he is portrayed as carrying wine and grapevines in a lot of art. But he's also associated with, like, just being out of your skull, basically. Like, yes. the way that the his followers, the Maenads, would have what we call Bacchanalia, I guess, in English, annoyingly, for Dionysus, um, that, you know, you would get, like, so into this Well, wait, I want to point out, it is a Greek word also. Is it? Yeah, he's oh. Bacchus to them, too. It's just that then hmm. the Romans kind of go with that, I guess, because um, it fits Latin. <laughs> he's got a billion names, though. Yeah. He is popular. He came from afar, and he got around a lot. Yeah. Um, and he's very... Impert, impert, very important in the 1960s for reasons you might be able to piece together if you've ever yes. heard about the 1960s. Um, 
But, like, his followers would get into this very altered state where they would lose track of what they were doing, and in some cases, at least in plays, probably not in reality, they would, like, tear people limb from limb. Yes. Supposedly they would tear animals apart. Okay. Yeah. Which is pretty hardcore, actually, because, like, if you've ever seen a body, like a chicken carcass or something, like, they're stuck together really well. Yes. I really called yes. <laughs> Oh, That's a weird way to put um, it, but they have like a lot of stuff holding them together. It's yes. not like a skeleton. Yes. They have <laughs> sparagmos is the term in Greek. Yes. For tearing apart a sacrifice to Dionysus kind with your bare hands. Mm-hmm. Yes. It would be a small animal. It would be a small animal usually. Okay. But in the theory an altered state Still. makes you stronger, so maybe mm-hmm. it wouldn't just be a chicken, maybe it would be, like, a small fawn or something. Yeah. Um, you see them sometimes with fawn skins and stuff. Obviously. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, um... But yes, in the, of course, the, the famous part of the myth is that they do tear apart a person who is Pentheus, who is also um, Dionysus's first cousin. Mm-hmm. Um, who denied him... Dionys- Dionysus, right. Pentheus... Denied that Dionysus was a god, called Dionysus's mom. Semele. Semele. Yes. Yeah, yes. Semele. Um, implies she, of course, got pregnant from Zeus. Mm-hmm. Um, nobody believed her that it was Zeus, so she is slut shamed by her whole family. And because of this, she then goes to Zeus and uh, asks him for promise, and he gives it without asking her what it's going to be, which is, of course, a thing you never ever do. Yeah. And then she demands to see him in his true form, the way Hera sees him, which, of course, you know, humans can't look upon a god. This is pretty standard throughout cultures. Um, this is obviously, Judaism has some famous moments like this. Actually, people going in the presence of the Ark who shouldn't have, um, and dying. Anyway, so... Um, Part of that was one of my Torah portions when I was... Oh, good. <laughs> yeah, 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 great. I mean, it's very impressive. And it's a reminder that this is a, a thing that peoples tend to believe in mm-hmm. right and so um yeah so he appears to her as briefly as he can but he promised a god has to keep their word it's one of the defining things of all the terrible things the gods do the one thing that they always have to do is keep their word um and so they sometimes find ways sort of to get what they want anyway, but they, that is a common factor. They do always keep their word. You can't go back on your word. So, um, he appears as, yeah, little as possible, sort of. (laughs) But, nonetheless, she fries to death, basically Mm -hmm. immediately. He saves the kid and sews him up in his thigh. Probably. That's the general way the myth goes. Euripides play, there's a suggestion that he hit him in a cloud. But anyway. Um, but of course, right, god of fertility. Dionysus mm-hmm. is a god of fertility, so he's sewn up in Zeus's thigh, um, and he's born a second time. Theoretically, he probably would have been a demigod, not an actual god, right? Because gods sleep with mortal women all the time, and vice versa. Yeah. Mortal men. Not vice versa, but mortal men. And no matter which way it goes, the kid is almost always a demigod, not a god. Mm-hmm. Um, so like Aeneas, for example, of course, is Venus's kid from a mortal father, and he's not a god. Um, 
some get turned into gods like Hercules, but um, that's later. He doesn't start as one. Uh, but Dionysus sort of gets born then as a god. Um, and so he's understood to be his myth hints that he's the youngest. But in actual historiography, he's one of the oldest gods, which mm-hmm. is funny. Yes, because his myth suggests he's very new to the scene, right? All of the other guys are kind of established, and Dionysus is born in this way. Um, he then theoretically kind of leaves, right? So his native city is Thebes. This is where Semele's from. Um, but he is thought of as having come from the east. Mm-hmm. So Persia, Turkey, maybe even as far as India. Um but he actually seems also to be extremely Greek. So he's actually very old and very Greek. Um, references go back at least to kind of the 1100s BCE. So around the time of the actual Trojan War, basically. Um, he's in records. So, um, yeah, so he's actually... So it's funny, because his myth posits him as kind of one of the newer gods, but he actually has this very long history. It also posits him as a foreign god, bringing in this sort of foreign influence to Greece. But of course, he's actually also a native of Greece. <laughs> he's not accepted by his home city when he shows up with all these foreign women from Turkey um, and Persia, Asia mm-hmm. Minor. Um, and so the play, of course, is a lot about acceptance and immigration <laughs> um, and all sorts of things like that. But it's also about the fact that um, it's not just that these women are foreign women, but they're also running across the hills doing all sorts of interesting things. Um, and Dionysus himself is portrayed in art. So again, we're back to sort of the history as anything from a middle-aged man with a beard and his crown of ivy and his grapes and his wine and so on. Um, to a very sort of young, boyish figure, mm-hmm. almost feminine, frequently. Um, and so there's this very interesting age range. We also see him sometimes as a kid. Um, he was supposedly raised by one of the satyrs. Yes. Oh, God, I knew his name. Yeah. Silliness. Silliness, yeah. Yeah, who's kind of the old the old satyr. Mm-hmm. So, um, so there's this really interesting myth um, about Dionysus... The figure he is, right? He's very, he's gender fluid. He's age fluid. These two things kind of went together for the Greeks, Mm -hmm. honestly. Um, He is very ambiguous as a figure in a lot of ways. He both sort of is and isn't Greek. Um, He's sort of new and old. Interestingly, in Greek myth, he is also one of the only gods who's faithful to his partner, who is a mortal woman. Yes, um, he winds up marrying Ariadne, who yeah. was the daughter of Theseus, who's nope, the not lover Theseus, of. the lover of Theseus, yeah. the yeah. daughter of Minos. Yes, yeah, who the- built, whose wife had an affair with a bull. Yes. And, and Daedalus is asked gave, to build the labyrinth yes. to hide the Minotaur away. Yes. Yes, the, the, the creature, yes. the half-man, half-bull creature. Right. Kid. So yeah. she is the master of the labyrinth. And actually, yes, if you she watch... she gives him the magic ball of twine. Um, <laughs> if you watch that annoying Leonardo DiCaprio movie, um, what was it called? The, the one Wow, I have no idea. Oh, no, because, okay, I'm sorry. <laughs> Speaking of drugs, I watched this while I was in the hospital after having a baby, so I was on a lot of them. Um, but it's, like, 
he's going through everybody's dreams. Um, oh, Inception. 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 Right. Inception. right. Yes. Okay. Yes, yes. So in Inception, Sorry. there's this of course, woman the labyrinth. whose name yes, is Ariadne. Yes. And if you know Greek mythology, it kind of, you know, spoiler alert. Um, <laughs> so many yes. times. Yes. But Theseus takes Ariadne away from all this madness and then abandons her on a beach, right. which I think was right. Naxos. Well, Yes, but wait, wait, wait. So she helps him out, right? Yeah, she um, gives him Athens a ball of Athens is, is tribute to Crete, so you have to send young Athenians to get eaten by the Minotaur every seven years or whatever. Theseus, when Theseus becomes king of Athens, he decides to put a stop to it. He goes into the labyrinth, mm-hmm. um, but he's if he's going to fight the Minotaur, if he dies, who cares? But if he doesn't, he's going to need a way out. So she gives him the magic ball of string that he unrolls as he heads into the labyrinth. Um, he does find the Minotaur, he fights him, he kills him, he gets out again because of the magic ball of string. Um, because she's betrayed her dad, she has to get out of there, so he takes her away, but yes, then he dumps her famously on the island of Naxos, where Dionysus finds her, and they end up happily together. And she's in a lot of art with him. Yeah, in some versions, um, he dumps her because Dionysus tells him to, which kind of is like a way of making him less of a bad guy in this situation, I guess. Right. But, yes. but generally, you know. Yeah. But, uh, but so she's sort of, yeah, the head, head Bakkent in a lot of ways, of mm-hmm. course. Um, and interestingly yeah. enough, she does get to be a god sort of later on. Like, there's at least one other myth where Dionysus yeah, she gets to be immortal with him goes yeah. to the underworld to retrieve the souls of his wife and mother and brings them to uh, Olympus. I almost said yeah. Valhalla, but that's wrong. Olympus. <laughs> um, but yeah, she gets she gets to stay with him. But um, the sort of but the general sort of point here. So Dionysus um, is all of these really interesting things, and there's some interesting things that have come from the the fact he's very gender ambiguous. As I said, very gender fluid, um, and that that's portrayed absolutely sort of in the play, the main play we have about him, the Bacchae, um, which of course is named for the. The Bacchants, right, for the mm-hmm. women who follow him. Um, we don't have a lot of... We know, of course, what some of his rituals were, because theater is one of them. And, of course, we have great documentation for it. Um, but we don't know what... Beyond that, it can be hard to know what a lot of rituals were, because, of course, if they weren't written down, if they were just practiced, <laughs> and eventually people stopped practicing them, you don't have right. them. So, like, the plays we have because they were written down. Um, This is the problem, I guess, of being a god whose whole thing is to appeal to people who are kind of marginalized, right? That, like, they might not speak the local language or something. Like, they're somehow... It's not even just that. It's more that his rituals are on some level parallel to the rituals of... Um, Persephone, mm-hmm. for example, and her mom, of course. Um, oh, like mystery cults? Yes. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And of course, mystery in the sense of it's a secret. <laughs> I mean, that's where we get the term yes. of mystery. They, they weren't actually secrets. You just had to be initiated. Mm-hmm. The problem is that, again, they are in, they are mysteries to us in the modern sense because we don't know. Because <laughs> Enough people who were initiated didn't write them down, because, of course, you weren't supposed to. But, yes, we're talking about fertility rights. So this is the main point, fertility rights. And 
this is definitely the sort of um, impetus for a, a lot of <laughs> what Dionysus is about, right? Ultimately, he's a fertility god. That's kind of his basis. Um, that's why, again, he's sort of parallel um, Persephone. Um, speaking of going into the underworld, right? Mm-hmm. The uh, the the rites at Eleusis, which are the the Persephone rites, um, we know very very little about ultimately. Um, Demeter, <laughs> it's Demeter and Persephone. It's clearly fertility. It's about you know spring. We want we need Persephone back, so Demeter will let things grow in the spring. All this stuff. Um, we just don't know a lot about what happened. It's that might also be related. There's a panel we have that sort of has got some artwork. There's some, you know, a few things here and there. Um, so it might also be a little related to the fact that Demeter also taught people, not just let things grow, but taught people how to grow grain. So agriculture. Mm-hmm. Um, it has been suggested that Dionysus is similar in some ways, right? That then if Demeter is kind of taking over food, right? We think of her ultimately for Rome, she becomes sort of Ceres. We think of her as cereal, right? We grains. We think of her as agriculture, bread. Um, the idea that Dionysus takes the other tack on fertility, which is stuff like wine. Um, so we think sort so fermentation, right? Um, also natural fluids. Um, so fertility god, if you think of like honey, um, milk, sap, these are all things that were thought of as being connected to growth. Um, but of course also can be fermented into alcohol. <laughs> right? You can ferment honey into mead and stuff like this. Obviously you ferment grapes. You can ferment all sorts of things into wine. Um, so Dionysus's fertility side is very closely tied to his sort of intoxicating side. Mm-hmm. And the intoxicating side is where, of course, we get the sense of Dionysus as a god of altered states, altered consciousness. Um, that also means so a god of madness, for example. Um, very much in the sense, though, of ritualized, right? <laughs> so, um, in the play about him, he drives the women of the city who refuse to follow him, the women of Thebes, mad. He sends them out into the hills as Bacchants. Mm-hmm. Uh, but this is a ritual um, frenzy, right? Um, but that is definitely one of the things he is god of. Um, from this, somehow, we also get disguise and theater, um, probably this has something to do, it seems that the Demeter Persephone rituals included some acting out, some sort of enactments of the myth mm-hmm. of Persephone. Um, it's unclear how much, and it's unclear sort of where the enacting things came for Dionysus's rituals. Um, we know that hymns were a huge part of it. There were sort of giant choirs dithyrambic choirs, we might think of them as big show choirs today, who would sing in competition. So you get these sort of dithyrambic show choir competitions for Dionysus. And at some point, those sort of merge, those sort of become a theater, right? They're, they're singing hymns, but also a lot of these hymns are stories. The, the myth that's told is that eventually one of the, the chorus leader um, decided to step out and sort of solo some of the lines, that his name was Thespis, which is where we get the term thespian. Um, he may have been a real person. Who is to say? 
But um, <laughs> the idea was that this is sort of how you started with a character and a chorus, and eventually you get two characters and a chorus, which is what we have when Aeschylus is writing plays, and then you mm-hmm. get three characters, and that's Sophocles and Euripides. This is also why the chorus is so important, because originally that was actually the main point was the chorus, mm-hmm. right? And the characterization comes in second. Um, although the plays that we have, the characterization isn't secondary to the chorus. They're all sort of equal parts. But it's a reminder of that ritual aspect of what's going on. Um, but Dionysus, anyway, so there's this sort of interesting, speaking of all of these things, there's this interesting article um, by Carl Rook um, in um, History of Toxicology and Environmental Health, I think, um, called Toxicology in Antiquity. Oh, this is, yeah, this is a book. Um, okay. And um, he has a chapter in this. I think it's an edited book, so he didn't write every chapter. But his chapter in this um, is on wine and the rituals of Dionysus. Okay. Um, and he suggests, basically, um, that the manifest, this is a quote from the abstract. Um, Dionysus's manifestation in the civilized ferment of the grape, which yielded wine, was contrasted with the intoxicants from other sources that preceded viticulture, such as toxic herbs, mushrooms, and animal and insect venoms. And so he sort of suggests, um, he says, the mountain revels of the deity's female devotees, known as minads or bacchants, um, honored the precedence that's preceding things precedence, right? The precedence to viticulture and rituals of herb gathering. Um, so his idea here, this is, this is one of those questions, right? Is the extent to which foraging and agriculture are antithetical. They aren't exactly antithetical. It's not entirely true that foragers stopped foraging when they created agriculture or that agriculture changed people from foraging. In some cases, people continue to be nomadic, even if they're growing things. Right, it's all a lot more complex than sort of the story from a hundred years ago or t- hundred fifty years ago at this point that agriculture, you know, then people settled into cities, and if you're foraging, then you're nomadic. Um, We're still telling but this ourselves is, that story. Like that's the story of why people do the paleo diet. Yeah, I know. We're <laughs> we're not talking about that today. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry if that I is, just if I just spiked your blood pressure. That um, is not a thing we're talking about. Nope. I mean, there's nothing wrong with doing such a but. The idea that somehow, you want to know how long people lived back then? They'd all be dead. Okay. <laughs> anyway, point is, <laughs> um, this sort of story, um, Ruck is not exactly suggesting this specifically, but he's suggesting that Dionysus was a, um, was understood in some ways as a figure who bridged this history, right? Mm-hmm. Because it's a history that people have told for a very long time. The Greeks had myths that were similar to this, that people used to live in kind of a state of, just like the Garden of Eden. I mean, it's it didn't originate in the Bible, right? The idea some, that goes back a long way, that there was a golden age, in the Bible, of course, it's just Adam and Eve, but the idea goes by, right, there was a golden age at one time where people were just childlike and they hung out and everything grew for them <laughs> everywhere, you can yeah. just wander through a forest and pick the food off the trees and blah, 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 blah. And then people slowly fall. And exactly how that happens depends, of course, upon the culture or the mythology. Um, and so, of course, then you get like the Silver Age, the Bronze Age, mm-hmm. 
the Iron Age and so on, right? So people start to to fall fall down through the metals, basically. I blame Prometheus. There's all that bringing fire. Yes. Just messed everything up. I mean, he did as well. Arguably, he brought fire after people had fallen to keep them so that they wouldn't die, right? So that mm. they would keep warm and could cook their food now that they had to do that <laughs> and stuff like that. Um, which is actually part of his myth, of course, famously. But um, anyway, so the sort of suggestion here that Karlmark is making is that Dionysus was seen as a figure who bridged these things, right? So both what the Greeks certainly considered to be the most, f- the most sophisticated and civilized form of intoxication, which is wine, <laughs> um, merged with something that they may have seen as its predecessor, but something they definitely still enjoyed, um, which was the botanical form of <laughs> intoxicant. Right. Um, yeah, the foraged type. Yes. Um, and so that the, the women, right, the Bacchants are this, this bridge as well, right? That they sort of do both their, that their ritualistic behavior merges these things together. Um, which is also cool because it makes women kind of the, the centerpiece then of these rituals. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and the way those things fit together. But it's also a reminder of just how to, how important Dionysus is to Western culture largely. And I, I, that's a very large sense, right? Dionysus is important, of course, to the West, everyone who considers themselves kind of descended from the Greeks, but also some people who don't, right? Mm-hmm. Um, he was still a kind of important figure, ultimately, you know, in like the Middle East and stuff, because all of a lot of, you know, Greek work made its way through the Middle East, through North Africa. Um, that's where the libraries were. That's where all the learning was, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so he kind of maintains this um, this imagery in a lot of ways. Um, so another important thing about this um, is the term, I didn't mention it in that abstract, but it is used by Rook. And it's one, it, this is what we're talking about today. This is why we sort of prefaced it all with Dionysus. I should say we're we're not talking about today is medicine. Some of this is medicinal, arguably, but we're not talking about medicine. That will be a separate series of episodes. Um, We are also not talking about um, non-ritual or non-religious use of substances. Mm -hmm. Um, So the word that is frequently used for this... Uh, it was coined in 1979 by a group of ethnobotanists, including Ruck, <laughs> um, Schultes, a bunch of other people um, who sort of pioneered this field. Uh, and they call they call these substances um, entheogens. That's E N T H E O G E N. And then I put an S on the end, you know, for plural. But um, entheogens, and the idea is. Um, it's the same root. It's entheos, ancient Greek, um, and genestai. It's the same root word, um, partly as enthusiasm. Mm-hmm. Um, entheo. And it suggests, um, something that's, uh, inspired by God, basically. Okay. Right. Um, so the sense here, Right, is that these are um, substances, botanicals. <laughs> these are botanicals that are believed to in- inspire you very literally. Mm-hmm. Right, to inspire, to 
you know, breathe in, but generally breathe in a spirit, right? Breathe in. So um, to sort of fill you with the spirit of God, um, which is different from today, of course, because of the speaking of the 60s. Um, unfortunately, <laughs> the counterculture lost. And then for the past, well, 50 plus years, 50 years or so, I guess, um, there was a sort of just complete um, prohibition, not only of taking a lot of these substances, although finally, you know, if you were an indigenous person, you were allowed to, if it was part of your culture in some cases, and certainly today at this point, you are supposed to be able to. Um, but there was also complete prohibition on studying any of this. Mm -hmm. Right. So scientists, the CDC, right, you weren't allowed to do studies. Um, and I think... Real, another shout out to Real Sports on HBO with Brian Gumble. Um, also, I think a shout out to Last Week Tonight. Okay. With John Oliver. Um, both of which have covered this fact, mm -hmm. which is that um, in the 60s, papers were written showing how powerful the effects of some of these could be medicinally for people suffering mm -hmm. from pain, emotional and physical. And then when the prohibition came down, all that stuff stopped. It just, of course, it just all stopped. And that was it. Um, and then only in recent years, as a little bit has been allowed back, there's suddenly this wave of study again. The fascinating thing is that um, some of the subjects from the 60s are still alive. <laughs> oh, yeah. So you can actually study what's happened to them. It hasn't been that long. In the past. Right. But that's the thing, right? So you can study what's happened to them in the past 50 mm -hmm. years. And the amazing thing is that some of them who said at the time they felt like what we would say today, microdosing and things like that, um, cured them. Mm -hmm. A lot of them feel this, this the same way today. It's sort of overwhelming. It doesn't work for everybody, of course. Nothing does. But the sort of overwhelming evidence is that not only was it right, but like 50 years later, you can still say it was right, which is an incredible data set if you think about it. Yeah, um, it's. I should say that um, Michael Pollan, who yes, wrote a, wrote book, a about book about it. this called How to Change Your Mind, Yes, I found yeah. it in many ways like a very frustrating book. Mm -hmm. um, I haven't just, read it. I will totally oh. be honest about that. Um, yeah. I mean, like, he gives a really good history of the research and stuff. He's mm -hmm. very fact-oriented. Um, he just doesn't ever talk about women, which I find oh. frustrating in well, especially given Dionysus and the Bacchants. <laughs> right. Right. Um, Does he not mention them? What? Really? No. He Aww. really, he starts his, <laughs> he starts his history with um, Hoffman. Oh, modern. Okay. Yeah. So, well, but also like that you could look at whatever 50 years of history and be like, there were no female scientists who ever worked right. on this. Like, really? <laughs> um, right. But yeah. that said... It is a really good book if you're interested in, like, the types of research that they were doing and what yes. people felt like they were getting out of it, so. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Well, and that's sort of the point, right? Um, and that's that's sort of the thing. But that's also why, because we have this history of sort of thinking of psychedelics, psychoactive substances, hallucinogens, as, um, you know, problematic suggesting sort of, you know, illness or mental breakdowns or things like this, as opposed to the idea that they might help heal them. Mm -hmm. um, because of that, right, we're talking um, about using the, the suggestion is to use different terms. And so they've come up with this terminology that has been somewhat embraced, really, I would say. Um, it gets used in the literature. 
um, talking about these specific substances um, and theogens, because that that is what's going on, right? That's absolutely what's going on. Um, these are all rituals to do with gods, right? So Dionysus is the most famous, um, but obviously there are, you know, <laughs> every culture has them. Oh yeah, um, there's. A, and there is a little bit of controversy here, actually, about whether we really mean every culture or not, because, of course, Christianity famously has shut down a lot of this and is the reason for a lot of it having been shut down in the U.S. Um, obviously, colonialism came in. Christianity shut down all the stuff in the Americas, which we're going to talk about. Um, we're not going to talk about the shutting down. We're going to talk about what was going on. But there is a sort of question about the extent to which Christianity in its early stages did or didn't embrace some of this. Um, and of course, the answer is that there were always people doing these things. Right. <laughs> like, whether or not they were officially allowed. Um, There's a particular strain of neo-atheism that one runs into where they will try to create a story. And some of these stories are very convincing and some of them are less so that links a Greek god to Jesus um, in the ways that their myths Co correspond and a certain number of those stories that are being told are that Dionysus got syncretized into Jesus or some of his Meh. myths did. Yeah, sure. I'm a, you know I think that a lot of people want to believe this, but there you go. Yeah, there's certainly like a lot of wine in Christianity. So sure. But I think it's it's better to point out that Judaism got syncretized into Christianity because yeah. Christianity was Judaism until it wasn't. But it was a sect of Judaism mm -hmm. until it wasn't. And um, so Jesus, I mean, Jesus is Moses. Christianity has never denied that either, really. He's the new Moses. Moses brought the Ten Commandments and the Torah. And then Jesus brought the new, you know, the new yeah. pact, basically. <laughs> right? Um, that's the whole point. Yeah, um, but I'm not up for arguing with neo-atheists on the internet. Yeah. My well, goal yeah. is just to oh, let no, wrong I'm not people be wrong without my comment um, associated but with them. This, But this brings us to, okay, um, so here's some of the sort of evidence. I will say uh, we're going to, cannabis is really going to get its own episode um, because it's so many things. We've mentioned hemp cloth before. Mm -hmm. Right. In, in, um, that of course has a long, long history. In this case, though, we're talking about cannabis as a, you know, weed, <laughs> a hallucinogen, of course, um, entheogen, but yes. Um, it's, yeah, and it deserves its own episode because there's so much of a history. Um, but it is worth pointing out that it, it's found way far back. So we'll talk more about this next time, but, um, you know, in burials, um, in the, some Scythian Iron Age tombs, um, the Pazric Valley, the Pazric burials. Um, there were some seeds, well, some residue found, um, and some seeds, a bag full of cannabis seeds with a sensor, um, and a frame uh, of an inhalation tent. So pretty clearly <laughs> these things Ow. being found together. Okay. It was burned and inhaled and yeah. Um, Interestingly, because it, it hasn't been as clear also for the Israelites, um, early, early Israelites, right? So early Jews, to what extent some of these things were used. Again, part of the argument for Christianity not is that maybe Judaism didn't, except for wine. Um, but in the, uh, an 8th century BCE temple, 
um, Talarad, cannabis residue was found, suggesting it was used in rituals. Um, it's worth pointing out, of course, we're going to talk about things that were added to wine in a little bit. Sometimes these things were added to wine. There's a lot of suggestion that Dionysian rituals were the, the, that the bucket part wasn't just metaphoric, <laughs> that there was real forging. Um, and things may have been, um, mm-hmm. then introduced to the wine because wine in Greece was famously diluted with water. Mm-hmm. So to get the kind of effects that some of these rituals supposedly had, Something else was probably in the wine. Um, and there's a suggestion that that is something that's stuck around in in Europe <laughs> throughout Christianity. Um, it is worth pointing out, of course, there are a lot of famous mystics in Christianity who is to say what was going on sometimes. Um, but anyhow, okay, so, so cannabis, yeah, there's some really early evidence um, in China, there's also some very early evidence, so we'll talk more about this. So, but it's, you know, cannabis has been around for thousands of years, all around the world. Um, and we'll talk about it both as, both as an entheogen, and then, of course, eventually as it starts to get turned into um, slightly harder, <laughs> slightly harder drugs that aren't necessarily just for entheogens, but also um, end up causing problems of abuse and stuff, which is something that... Or poetry. You know. Yes, exactly. But um, so we'll save that that next time. (laughs) Yes, for the next episode. Um, But yeah, so obviously, obviously, weed will get its own thing. Um, The other things, the things we'll talk about today, though, are um, the other famous things, I guess, basically. So mushrooms, of course. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, Water lilies, cactus, morning glories, nightshade. Mm-hmm. Um, those are kind of the the big ones, um, and ayahuasca is a shrub. Okay. Anyway, so um, these are all things that are used again, sort of around the world. Um, there are arguments because in cases we're going to talk about. Um, so there's ethnobotany, which is um, paying attention to how a specific culture uses things, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and Obviously, that is key <laughs> um, to differentiating, I mean, what we today would call illegal versus legal use, right? <laughs> um, so in entheogen, right, this is um, ethnobotany. This is recognizing that this is how a culture perceived the use of a specific plant. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, there's um, archaeology and botany. Um, called paleobotany or archaeobotany. Um, there's also paleoethnobotany. Um, They're just making stuff up now. Yeah, it depends on, you know, I think archaeobotany is the, maybe the winning term at this point. <laughs> okay. <laughs> the study of ancient plant remains. Paleoethnobotany <laughs> would be a way of saying, you know, well, like paleontology, right? It's the study of how Paleoethnobotany is the study of how ancient cultures used their plants. Mm-hmm. And archaeobotany is the specific science of testing the remains, basically. <laughs> right? Like archaeology, right? You're the ones who dig the stuff up and test it and find out what it is. Right. So, you know, that's how come we know there was cannabis residue in the 8th century temple in Israel because, you know, somebody tested it. Um, but 
all of these are important <laughs> specializations. Sure. Um, because this is how we um, both figure out what was going on, what was there, what was present, and also how it was being used. Yes. Um, so, um, let's see. I will give a shout out to, um, let's see, hallucinogenic drugs in pre-Columbian Mesoamerican cultures by F.J. Caroda Artal. That's Caroda Artal, hyphenated. Okay. Um, Good title. In, yes. And that's in Neurologia, the mag- oh. the the journal, Neurologia. Yeah. Okay. And it's both exists in an, both Spanish and English editions. Okay. Yes. Yes. Um, so the sort of um, abstract for this is <laughs> that um, many, of course, famously, many pre-Columbian Mesoamerican cultures used what we would call psychoactive plants and fungi um, for religious purposes, also therapeutic medicinal purposes, um, and that um, these included everything I've sort of just listed, right? So um, the cactus, mushrooms, um, and other uh, specimens were used to induce altered states of consciousness in healing rituals and religious ceremonies. Um, for example, the Maya drank balke, a mixture, I think we've mentioned this maybe in the alcohol episode, um, but it was a mixture of honey and extracts of a psychoactive plant. Um, and this was drunk in group ceremonies to achieve intoxication. Um, the Olmec, Zapotec, Maya, and Aztec all used peyote, which is derived from a cactus. Mm-hmm. Um, also hallucinogenic mushrooms, um, which of course are what we call magic mushrooms today. I mean, it's the same mushrooms, the same family, I guess, or the same active ingredient. Yeah. The same family uh, of mushrooms. Well, Psilocybin. a lot of mushrooms can cause hallucinations. It's just that some yes. of them also cause death and some of them don't. Right. So you have so to be is, careful. Yes. This, this is, is a warning. This is... Do not go out and eat random mushrooms. Make, oh, God. Never. Make someone go with you yeah. who knows what they're doing. Right. And even then, honestly, I wouldn't. But, um, but yes, this is psilocybin. You know, nowadays, if you like live in Oregon, you can get it. Oh, really? Legally. Okay. Yeah. Cool. They legalized a lot of stuff, tiny amounts, but for microdosing. Oh. Um, and there are other places, oh, I think, maybe a few other states where you're allowed under the auspices of a doctor, like literally, uh-huh. under the eyes of it to experience this. Uh, this is part of the stories I was talking about on HBO. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, where they like literally watch you and they're sort of there as you go through the experience. And it's, it's a whole therapy session. Yeah, they do. Right. I know they use it. For people who have terminal diagnoses, um, yes. to help them come to terms with that. Yes. There's actually yes. a guy in town who owns a major, um, like, IT... They're not exactly an IT company. They do, like, blood tests and stuff. Okay. Biological yeah, yeah. bits. Mm-hmm tests mm-hmm. for things and he's spent a lot of money also um on a company that invests in this kind of research which is oh cool kind of random but yeah there you go 
That's neat. Um, yeah, it's also used for PTSD. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, absolutely. And it's the sort of thing where people have said, um, you might only need a, a couple sessions, for example. Like, if it works for you, you know, you need, like, two or three sessions can be literally all you, and then that's yeah. it. Like, and then you can go off and live your life. Um, I can't imagine volunteering to take psychoactive drugs more than once. But, yeah, well, yeah, again, it's microdosing, right? Yeah, so it's okay, very yeah. specific. And it's it's the whole experience, right? It's sort of an hour of therapy. You're sort of there. You say what you're seeing. You sort of, as you come out of it, you talk with them, you know. So it becomes, okay. it's a whole sort of, yeah. But it's basically because, a lifetime of therapy okay. wrapped up into, like, two or three sessions. <laughs> that is amazing. Because, like, yeah. most of the time, drugs are really time-consuming. Yes. And I know this sounds very ADHD of me, but, like, I don't have... <laughs> 12 hours to commit to hallucinating anymore. Like, that's just too much time. That's right. I well, don't that, want... That doesn't usually take... I think it's just a few hours. It's not like... It's just, I don't think they're not dose dependent. <laughs> that's the point of... These aren't like the... These are the, um... You know, the more regular sessions. These aren't the... Yeah. There are people who go off and do weekends like this, and then... But this is Ugh. not that. This is okay. not that. Um, <laughs> this is more like, you know, how much time would you spend at the therapist's office anyway, right? Maybe it's like a double session. It's but. the 53-minute hour. Yes. Yes. But this would actually be like the hour and a half. The actual hour and a yeah. half hour or something. Yeah. Um, but anyway, so, yes. So mushrooms, of course, have been around, again throughout the Americas forever. Um, I mean, at least for a few thousand years. Um, so it says mushroom stones dating from 3000 BCE um, have been found in ritual contexts in Mesoamerica. Um, so that would be 5,000 years ago. And all these groups, so that was, of course, to induce trance and so on. Um, the All these same groups, so the Olmec, the Zapotec, the Mayan, the Aztec, also used peyote. Um, similarly, the use of peyote dates back over 5,000 years. Um, also, <laughs> um, the morning glory, um, which is um, very common, sort of, again, throughout. Uh, and it's primary um, intoxicant, I guess. <laughs> its primary ingredient um, is uh, mescaline. Cool. Um, yeah. So that's, that's that one. <laughs> um, I think that is still mostly illegal today, but that was a, that was also very common. Um, yeah, so mescaline. Um, are they and, different from, like, the morning glory seeds you buy at the grocery store? I would assume. But also, um, you know, like, it takes some work to, uh distill the properties okay. from any of these things, right? <laughs> um, Surgic acid so, amide. Yeah. Um, I, yeah. at one point, bought, like, just a bunch of morning glory seeds to plant, and uh -huh. the grocery store person was, like, looking at them and being like, wow, enjoy your flowers. And now I'm, like, rethinking this interaction and being like, <laughs> what did she think I was doing? Right. I, did, I mean, I don't think they thought I, I mean, I didn't know. I know mescaline, of course, I've heard of, but I had no idea where it came from, to be honest. Okay. Um, so I don't, I don't know how common knowledge that is. Okay. 
Yeah, I only know mescaline as like one of the various drugs that turns up in Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, I think. Exactly. Yes, famously. Yeah. (laughs) It does, it does. Yes. Um, But yeah, so yeah, I don't know how how common that is. Um, Honestly, I didn't know peyote was related to the cactus. I mean, it is a cactus, but Mm -hmm. I didn't really know that. Um, You know, you know, they're all plants, but yeah. You don't usually hear about them in plant form, of course, right? Right. Um, I mean, nobody thinks of morphium at, or more, nobody thinks of morphine as an extract of the poppy. Right. Well, that, to be fair. Very very old thing. Yes, that I know just because that's such a, that's something else we'll talk about next time with the Mm -hmm. illicit side. Um, But that's because this, the history of the poppy Mm -hmm. as, of course, Yes. Um, morphine and opium and then heroin, right? Um, that is a, that is a different side of life. Um, from what we are talking about here. Although to be fair, speaking of like morning glories and what is their history, um, poppy seed, anything I super love. So the poppy is also maligned. Yeah. Um, also, of course, that has other meanings, right? The fields of poppies that, you know, the Brits wear for World War One. Um, so, yeah, it's, it is, but it is worth remembering, of course, this is sort of the interesting thing about all of these, is that they are plants, right? So when people are talking about natural ingredients and this and that, and of course, famously, people will say, well, cyanide is, you know, a naturally occurring ingredient. Yes, it is true. Arsenic, right? All of these things are technically natural ingredients. Um, yeah, I mean, nightshade. So, is there something we're going to talk about? It can obviously poison you. Yeah, let's but talk also about has that. been used as a hallucinogenic. Nightshades are a family of plants. Yes. That includes tomatoes. Yes. Which we appreciate <laughs> yes, and which they is do not make you hallucinate or should not. Right. I guess. Right. For a long time, though, yeah, in Italy, they wouldn't eat, they didn't eat them. Like, historically, there's sort of things about we shouldn't eat these because they're probably poisonous. Doesn't Tom and then, Brady of course, somebody also not eat nightshades or something? I don't know. Anyway. <laughs> but eventually someone tried the tomato, and then, of course, now yeah. we have Italian cooking. <laughs> yes, exactly. They took off. But, yes, this is, um, so, uh, Karsten Fatur has an article called, um, Hexing Herbs. Um, in, uh, and it's about sort of the use of nightshade in Europe, the historical review of the uses of nightshade in Europe. Um, and yes, (laughs) um, the article says, though not the most frequently used botanical family, um, the nightshade family has provided many plants of great importance around the world, um, which is, yeah, absolutely true. Um, the is important to the formation of traditions pertaining to many aspects of human life. Um, and of course it exists again. Yes. Throughout Europe. <laughs> um, this is the one. So where it suggested that this, this is actually what's suggested to have been added to wine, for example, in ancient Greece. Um, so the article says um, the wine of the famed Bacchanalian orgies of ancient Greece has been suggested to contain some element of belladonna or mandragora mm-hmm. to add to its effects um this is theoretical but there's good basis for it because of the extent to which wine was diluted in antiquity for it to cause the sort of intoxication that's described 
it would need to include something besides just the alcohol. And this would have been a perfect sort of choice. Um, in the Middle Ages, um, these seeds may have been thrown on fires um, to sort of create, obviously, intoxicating effects. Um, it was quite possibly also used throughout Europe in the Middle Ages as an additive sometimes to beer. This is something else I think we talked about in the alcohol episode, the extent to which people added things to their beer and they weren't supposed to. Yes. And of course, hops was one of those things most famously, but they added tons of stuff. Now, people, of course, add tons of stuff, but usually not something like Nightshade, <laughs> Belladonna, no. Mandragora. Um, but that these might have, were probably some of the things that they did add to strengthen, strengthen it, kind of in quotes, <laughs> right? Um, Yes, you. this would potentially bring people back to buy more beer from you as opposed to going to your competitors, right? I guess um, so. And, it would, and it suggested also that it would represent a good way for the common person to achieve this type of high, basically, um, that, you know, you couldn't afford better stuff, basically, that the upper classes were having, but you could afford this, right? Um Unfortunately, the, the practice was probably widespread because it was widespread enough that occasionally it was deadly. So occasionally people would add too much or some part of the nightshade that they shouldn't. And laws end up getting passed against it in the early 1500s in parts of what is now Germany. Um, so that's that. Um, I mentioned like, so Belladonna, of course, is probably most famous for being generally toxic, right? Yes. Um, but Mandragora um, also generally toxic, but also um, very much a narcotic. Um, the Greeks used it a lot. Romans used it somewhat. It was used through the Middle Ages um, and was thought of very much as a sort of important medicinal plant. Um, it was used for depression and anxiety. It was used as an anesthetic. Um, it was used for you know spasms and fever and um, a sleeping medication and all sorts of things. The sleeping medication um, seems to be something that continued and for which it was known. Um, Shakespeare mentions it in Othello. Mm. So, um, but it was known definitely to be the sort of sleeping potion that could put you to sleep permanently. So it's not like they didn't know it was poisonous. <laughs> uh -huh. um, which, of course, yes, is the interesting thing about Nightshade, that it, that's one of those examples of people dancing on the edge, right? Um, weed is not that type of plant. Mushrooms, no. if you get the right one, the right mushrooms are not mm. that type of plant. Right. <laughs> um, nightshade is definitely that type of plant. Yes, there are some parts of the family, like tomatoes, that are delicious and definitely not toxic. And then there are parts that are the opposite. And the parts that are toxic are dangerous. Yeah. Yeah. This um, is the thing about a lot of hallucinogens... Um, LSD, <laughs> yes, <laughs> famously, like the amount that you need to to produce an effect is so much smaller than the LD fifty that they wind up being fairly yes. safe because nobody is going to take, you know, if you get the effect at fifty micrograms, nobody is going to take two hundred or five hundred micrograms. Right. It would like it would be insane. Right. Right. Yeah. But that's right. That's the thing about microdosing is sort of the realization of how little you need. It's mm -hmm. also worth pointing out that, of course, in the past, they're usually microdosing because they don't have the ph pharmaceutical equipment yes, to distill they... it in the ways we do today. Right? right. When you're cutting off a piece of a root or 
a cactus. It's right. a little bit less precise. Yes. So you're unlikely to sort of be getting the doses that we can create today. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Um, I do want to come back to Morning Glories here. Um, consumed by the Maya and the Aztec for their psychotropic effects on perception and emotions and to induce trance states. Um, they were commonly used by the Mixtec and Zapotec peoples in Oaxaca, and they're used to this day by local healers who conduct curative and divination ceremonies. Um, so they've been used at least for, you know, a few thousand years. Um, ethno-historical accounts, so written records, basically, um, of the use of this plant date, of course, to the 16th century, Europeans. Um, during his journey through Oaxaca, court physician Francisco Hernandez, Francisco Hernandez, um, described how these seeds were used. He reported that a fully hallucinogenic dose, so there you go, right? Dosage. <laughs> yeah. Um, so he reported that a fully hallucinogenic dose contained 100 to 150 ground seeds dissolved in cold water. Um, In the chapter titled Some Herbs with Intoxicating Effects, um, Fray Bernardino de Sahugan, um, he's a Franciscan friar, um, he presented the following account of the psychoactive effects. Um, He said there's this herb and it grows a seed the seed produces inebriation and madness. People mix it in potions to give those to give to those they wish harm. Those who eat it appear to see visions and terrifying things. Sorcerers, you can get the colonialism here, right? Um, sorcerers mix it with food and drink, and so do those who hate others and wish to do them ill. The herb is medicinal, and its seed is used to treat gout. Ground seeds are applied to the gout-stricken area. So this interesting way in which he both um, <laughs> acknowledges that it can be useful, but also is like, it must be evil. <laughs> um, yeah, but there you go. So um, it is, of course, a strong one, I imagine. Um, I don't know what by today's standards, 100 to 150 seeds would be, but he says that's a full dose, which I assume means that anything less than that would basically be microdosing. Ultra microdosing, right? You wouldn't maybe sure. get the hallucinations. The hallucinations you get, or you wouldn't get a fully altered state, you just sort of, yeah. Um, okay, so then we should also mention, by the way, in addition to morning glories, that water lilies also can be narcotics. Okay. Um, the blue water lily in Egypt was used back in ancient Egypt, and the white water lily, which I guess is sometimes also known as the white lotus, um, in Mesoamerica by the Maya. Okay. Um, so similar, again, purposes and ritual. Um, yeah, so, but water lilies. <laughs> Um, not as commonly known, but they are shown in artwork as being part of this, um, both in ancient Egypt and in the Maya. Um, all right, so peyote, of course, it's a cactus. Um, it's, it says it's a rounded, spineless cactus um, containing more than 60 hallucinogenic alkaloids. Um, the liquid extract is used to treat... Cutaneous lesions, snake bite, and scorpion stings. Um, and, oh, the term mezcal is um, derived from Nahuatl, mm-hmm. by the way. Of course, also, yeah. Um, cactus. <laughs> um, right, so there's alcohol, there's peyote. Cactus gives us lots of things. Um, I mean, cactus gives us way more than this. I've heard that cactus jelly is amazing. Anyway. 
the cactus is an underappreciated plant. Okay. Um, all right. So the that's because most of them have spines on them, which makes it difficult to harvest. This is true, but like you know, I mean, obviously people do harvest them because we make right the blue cactus, agave stuff like yeah. this. Um, well, all sorts yeah. of fun things. But anyway, um, yeah, we get we get tons of awesome stuff from the cactus from different cact. There are many many different cacti, of course. <laughs> but um, mm-hmm. so um, let's see. Um, oh yes, so Sp- Spaniards believe that the inebriation produced by peyote um, was similar to alcohol, but it's not. Um, oh no, wait. Here's mescaline. So the morning glory is something else. There you go. Interesting. I got that backwards. Morning glories are their own form of a yeah. hallucinogen. It says uh, lysergic yes, acid mescaline amide. is related to peyote. Hmm? Lysergic acid amide is... Oh, there you go. That's what they are. Compound okay. in... Yes. Which, if you follow uh, LSD, is lysergic acid diethyl amide. Yes. So they're connected so, to LSD. Yeah. Aha, there you go. So peyote is connected to mescaline. Um, all right. So um, let's see here. Um, yeah. So mescaline is responsible for the hallucinogenic effect of peyote. Um, it's found at concentrations ranging from 1% to 6%. The minimum hallucinogenic dose is between 0.3 and 0.5 grams which is equivalent to five grams of dried peyote. Okay. Um, dried mescal buttons from the cactus may be chewed or drunk in an infusion. The typical dose is four to 12 buttons. Um, they're extracted from the main stem and cut into slices. Uh, the ritual use of peyote in the Americas dates back more than 5,000 years to obviously be basically prehistoric. <laughs> um, in a literal sense, maybe prehistory, but yeah, that's a long time ago. Um, Traces in a ritual context have been found sort of throughout Mexico, um, caves in Texas, <laughs> um, and are usually included with other artifacts, um, a ritual deer, scapula, bone rods, tubes with incense, things like this. Um, so, of course, right, it's always part of ritual. Um, the Maya, the Aztecs used peyote. Um, there's also... There are a variety of cacti that include or contain mescaline. Um, and also there's a mescal bean. Yes. Um, and the same friar who did not um, super approve of the morning glory below. Um, this one got confused. I forgot he had described both of them. Um, he also describes peyote. Um, and he says, so this is um, Bernardino. Um, and he says there's another herb like mountain prickly pear <laughs> um, named Piero, he says, um, which is white and can be found in the north. Those mm-hmm. who eat or drink of it see terrifying or absurd visions. This inebriation lasts two or three days and then subsides. It's a delicacy. Um, and it is sustaining and spurs people to fight with no thought of fear, thirst, or hunger. Hmm. Um, and they say it protects them from all danger. Um, users were persecuted. This is the end of that quote. Then back to the history. Um, users were persecuted by the Inquisition. The practice was completely prohibited by 1720. 
um, at present indigenous peoples of northern Mexico, as well as uh, the Navajo and Comanche in the southern U.S. are allowed to use peyote in ritual and curative ceremonies. Um, so, so yeah, peyote and mescaline, morning glories, nightshade. <laughs> yes. Mm-hmm. Well, like one thing this makes me think of. Yes. Um, that I'm actually very surprised by because when I when we started talking about this, I sort of thought we were going to be talking about specific oracles who had visions, right? Ah. So, yes. like one question that you can say like, as you like Delphi, look, yeah, like Delphi, right? Uh, um, that one question that you can ask about a religion is who's allowed to talk to God. And who's allowed mm-hmm. to, like, receive visions? And right. if you look at Catholicism specifically, they very much reserve that act for specific people. Right. Well, um, no one's really allowed to... Well, anyone is allowed to talk to God. Very few people are allowed to expect a response. Right. Right. <laughs> <laughs> right. And in that sense, sort of anyone can expect a response, though, right? Saints, mm-hmm. there are plenty of women. Yeah. Who received visions that these people are sort of they're doing if you are a female saint you are very much doing an end run around a lot of procedural apparatus in the catholic church right yes um and (laughs) this is also the case for interestingly our much maligned and sort of sketchy american religion mormonism where everybody is sort of allowed to have visions, like to have this communion themselves with God. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting to have all of these other religious groups that were suppressed by the Catholic Church that were also like people going out and taking drugs in order to have visions. And I assume like these are in a religious ritual context that like Mm -hmm. this is significant. Like it feels... It's yes. a very interesting sort of thing. Oh, yeah. There's doing. a lot of discussion about the fact, I mean, basically, that all of this had to be abolished by the Inquisition um, and the colonizers because um, Christianity didn't have, a lot of things could be syncretized, mm-hmm. but Christianity does not have a clear um, parallel to the use of um, hallucinogenic <laughs> drugs, drugs. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and theogens. Yeah. yeah. And so um that's definitely that's definitely been hypothesized. It's also worth pointing out of course that Christianity um partic- I mean in the Americas did take on a lot more of this um in some ways than it did back in sort of Europe and the Middle East and North Africa. Mm-hmm. Um because if you can think I mean there are Christian not, not even counting the Mormons, but um, certain aspects of, you know, American Baptist and so on. There are groups that absolutely do have visions, speak in tongues. Yes. Which, of course, right, and that the derivation of it is in the Bible, technically, right, Pentecost. Mm-hmm. So Pentecostal, <laughs> right? Um, so, which is where that term comes from then, right? So that to be Pentecostal... You're tying it directly to the Bible, but it obviously partakes of some of these things in the New World, like visions and hallucinations. Um, it may not include um, entheogens, yeah. <laughs> 
basically. But yes, right, it, it absolutely partakes of that type of religiosity mm-hmm. in a way that um, the medieval Christianity of Spain that was imported <laughs> at the beginning did not, yes. arguably, right? Even though there were people who did. There were definitely people, mm-hmm. right? There are plenty of famous mystics and figures of the Middle Ages, of course, who become famous for frenzies and for trances and for visions um, that frequently do seem like they may have been induced by something like this. Um, and certainly people have suggested that some of them may have been. Um, there's famously things like, right, ergot, right, the mold on yes. the, you know, that did make people genuinely sick. Um, so there have been suggestions that some of these, you know, figures may have suffered from something like that or ingested things like that. Not necessarily knowingly, right? Potentially mm-hmm. unknowingly, just because of <laughs> what things were like at the time. Um, yeah, but it is kind of an open question. And um, there, again, there's a suggestion, of course, some people were doing it somewhat knowingly. For example, if you're doing things like adding a little nightshade to your beer, <laughs> that's that's yeah. knowing. Um, so it's not like they weren't aware these things were out there. Um, but there was not a sense of depending on them. Also, arguably, yes, there is a danger in having too many people think that they can commune in that way. Mm-hmm. Um, rituals, of course, it prescribes the people who can be present and the times it can be done. Yes. Right. Um, but generally, if we're talking about sort of things that are burning incense fires, the shaman may be the main person who gets to partake, right? Or the oracle, of course, at Delphi. Mm-hmm. But may not be the only ones. I mean, other people, if there are people nearby as part of the ceremony, they're also going to get some yeah. of the effect. Mm-hmm. Right? And the descriptions here do suggest that multiple people are allowed to try this. Right? Yeah. Because the, the descriptions don't necessarily include things like, only this one shaman is allowed to do it ever. <laughs> <laughs> Nobody else can do it. Right. Right. If it were just um, that guy, suppressing it is a lot easier. Exactly. So the fact, so it does seem like it was a wider spread practice. And obviously some of the rituals are definitely, um, things like, you know, rituals into adulthood. I mean, so mm-hmm. some of them definitely are, probably were like entire groups of young men, for example. Um, you know, so there, there are probably some cases in which it is a very much a group ceremony. Yeah. And so, um, yeah, the, these are all the things I was going to say mushrooms. We should, there's just a little bit more to be said. Um, okay. and not just, not just about mushrooms. Um, but mushrooms, of course, again, yeah, I mean, I guess we did talk about them. We sort of know about them. Um, like I said, the ritual sort of stones have been found way back. Um, but we have discussed, so we've discussed, of course, some of these things are burned and you inhale the smoke. Um, some of these things are drunk or ingested. Um, also, <laughs> Um, the Maya used enemas to administer certain substances in order to attain more intense trance states more quickly. Um, researchers have discovered Mayan classical period sculptures and ceramics depicting scenes in which hallucinogenic enemas are used in rituals. Some figures um, are shown receiving them. I'm so excited that some guy was like, I'm going to make a statue of that. Yes. That's amazing. Yes. Yes, or carve it onto a wall. Yes, yeah. it's a kind of fresco. Yeah. Um, there are also um, anthropomorphic terracotta figures demonstrating the self-administration of psychoactive enemas. Yes. Um, various descriptions from the colonial period, such as the Florentine Codex, describe how enemas were used to combat illness um, and discomfort of the digestive tract. 
I they just were feel bad also for like hmm? poor two Jaguar, who is like the guy up there who inspired the artist, and now he has to go the rest of eternity being the guy in the carving. Yes. yes. Well, I assume. I mean, it's a ritual, so I assume that it's sort of an important yeah. thing, right? Um, but the the use was also associated with rites or ceremonies in which participants would reach a state of ecstasy. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So you go. You'd have to. Uh, enemas containing alcohol. Sometimes mixed with other psychoactive substances, were applied using syringes made of gourd and clay. Um, there is a god, a Khan, whom Spanish writers referred to as the Mayan Bacchus, who watched over these rituals. Um, some ceremonies were held underground in caves, which were considered points of access to the underworld. Um, remember the caves in Texas that have evidence of some of the stuff. Um, this was thought to intensify the inner vision. Provided by ingesting these substances. Yeah. Fun. There you go. Yep. <laughs> um, so that's, that's enemas. Um, yeah. But the consumption in multiple ways of mushrooms specifically in ritual ceremonies um, was widespread and extended from the Valley of Mexico through the rest of Central America. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And there's and some examples not- of the specific mushrooms that they were probably using. Just yes. to say, it's not until modern times when Italians have started eating tomatoes that we can just have mushrooms on pizza. Right. Yes. Well, obviously, again, as with aspects of the nightshade family, not all mushrooms are. Yes. Yeah. Yep. But anyhow, so, yep. There we go. That's a, so that's a good cover of the botanicals. Yes. Um, yeah. So, particularly in the Americas, um, for sure... Definitely, and also in sort of the ancient world, mm-hmm. ancient Egypt, ancient Middle East, um, ancient Greece, <laughs> ancient Rome, even, yeah, um, ancient China, right? So, um, yeah, I should say, I mean, like, we sort of touched yeah. on this, right? That it's a really interesting commonality of a lot of religions that you would try to achieve a kind of ecstatic state like that. And yes. there are also definitely religions, if you're, you know, straight edge and you're looking for something, that they try to do that without drugs, um, including Tibetan Buddhism, Speaking of the Mormons I think. again, actually. Oh, yes. Also the Mormons. Um, yeah. <laughs> Tibetan Buddhism is weird in a lot of other ways, though. So, but like, you know, hmm. meditation in extreme circumstances that really pushes you into that sort of state. Um, And it says something very interesting about humanity as a whole, that there's this desire to reach some sort of state beyond the box of consciousness that we all live in, I guess. The yes, ding on sitch or whatever, the minon, we want to experience something larger. Yeah, which of course is is the point. Yeah, that's why the ritual, right? The point is, of course, to communicate with the beyond, the spirit world, the ritual world, right? God, whoever it is, but to go beyond, mm-hmm. right? And that has always been the point. It continues to be the point for people who do these things generally. I mean, that you want to open your mind. That was kind of the point. Um, it is, of course, also where the, you know, it's the um, stereotype that a lot of people make fun of. Um, but the fun aspect of that is that it turns out to be very literally true in some ways. Mm-hmm. Right? It really can very literally change your mind. <laughs> yes. Um, yeah. So, um, 
Right. Yeah. And it is also worth pointing out that a lot of the things we have talked about today are not in any sense what will later be considered gateway drugs. Right. The the term is, which is very fraught um, with... Anti something leading something yeah, else that leads I mean, to yeah. yeah, it's like Nixon Nixonian racism. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but it turns out the real <laughs> gateway drug, <laughs> the real gateway drugs are legal. What like did you say? Oh, and opioids. Well, capitalism. Yeah. Um. Right. Because also but anyhow, <laughs> <laughs> the idea that people should be like doing working stuff and not pursuing ecstatic trances. Um, right. Right, which but I think that is, could be good for us. Yeah. Which is not surprising. Yeah. So why religion arguably has mattered frequently. I mean, you know. Religion is such a weird... Anyway, let's not get into mm-hmm. a topic. The discussion nope. of, like, is religion nope. good because of mind expansion or bad because of, you know, inquisitions? Right. Um, well, this is not... I'm just saying, but it's one of the things that <laughs> arguably about religion that... Um, that people, people sort of forget has been an important part. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. All right. That's a good place to leave this. Yes. Because Dionysus was a god. So let's yes, end on exactly. that. Um, yes. yes. In the meantime, you can uh, follow us on Facebook at askmedievalist. No, that's our website. Okay. Sorry. <laughs> I haven't even had that much brandy. Uh, It's facebook.com slash askmedievalist, or just, like, search for it on Facebook. We have a website, which is askmedievalist.com. We have a Twitter, which is at askmedievalist. I have been cross-posting all of our episodes to my Mastodon account, which is pretense soup, all one word, at romancelandia.club. Don't worry about it. Uh, And we're on all your favorite podcast apps. My book is on Amazon if you search for Dionysus in Wisconsin, it really has actually very little to do with the historical Dionysus, but it's still a lot of fun. They fight demons and stuff. It's great. Check it out. And until next time, keep it medieval. Ask a Medievalist is a production of This Can't Be That Hard Studios and is not endorsed, acknowledged, or condoned by Virginia Commonwealth University or any of its constituent departments. Our theme music is Veni Veni Venias from Carmina Burana by Carl Orff, performed by the MIT Concert Choir and licensed under a Creative Commons attributional non-commercial license version 3.0. If you enjoyed our podcast, please rate us and leave a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Also, why not tell a friend? For more on today's topic, including sources, annotations, and corrections, visit our website at www.askamedievalist.com. And if you have questions, feel free to drop us an email at questions at askamedievalist.com. Thank you.